So let me pray. Lord, I pray for this service that you would uh, help the, the uh, technological issues to be uh, not an issue. And pray for Tim as he delivers your word, Lord, that you will bless his preparation and that you would make the difference that would take his words and plant them straight into the hearts. Um, the specific things that you've got for each one of us, we pray that we wouldn't miss them. So we ask him, we ask you to bless him. Let's do it right now, then. Yeah. We'll just... Mine does not seem to be coming back. I hear you. Can you guys do a quick sound? Can you hear me? Yep. Awesome. Can you hear me?
Good morning, everyone. Morning, church. Welcome to our worship service this morning. It's so good to see you all here. And um, pardon the little technological glitch that we had up here for a minute. We had to do a second sound check today, but we're good to go. So we're here today to worship the Lord. You know, a lot of times we walk in the building, we say, oh, we're going to sing some songs, and that's church. Well, we're here to worship a God, and we worship a God who does and is amazing. Wouldn't you agree? And so there's a lot of ways in which he is amazing. One that we sing about a lot is his amazing grace, the fact that he has chosen to love and redeem us who are sinners, at least I am. I know maybe some of you guys aren't quite so bad, but that's amazing. To me, it's amazing. So to just sort of get us to be get into this spirit of worship, we are going to just take a minute where you can reflect on the amazingness of the God that you worship. There's a picture on the, the uh, walls that was just taken by the Webb Space Telescope, and we, made a God, we worship a God who made an amazing world and an amazing universe. And this telescope has given us even a better and more um, detailed picture of just how amazing that creation is that we enjoy. So let's reflect on the God that we worship, and then we'll stand, sing, and worship him together. I'll give you a minute. If you are able, stand with us and... Let's uh, worship this God.
Thank you. You may be seated. Hey there, I'm Priscilla, and I'm excited, as always, to have the opportunity to invite you to join me for Going Beyond Simulcast. Okay, here's what makes it unique. It's a digital opportunity for us to gather together globally. I'm talking about across lines that would normally divide us, not just because we live, you know, a neighborhood away or a couple states away, but even in different countries and continents, different languages, different accents, different streams of the church that are outside of our normal frame of reference. Through the Going Beyond Simulcast, we gather together globally. What an opportunity to form a sisterhood and to be a part of a gathering and have this opportunity to have our lives shifted, our perspectives changed, our hearts reignited with passion for the things of God. That's what the Going Beyond Simulcast is all about. And I can't wait to share it with you. today. Did you see that? <laughs> All right. My name is Leah. Um, and I want to tell you a quick story. Um, about 20 years ago, I was asked to be on a committee for a women's retreat. And I said yes, because I had three small children at home. I was trying to hold down a career, a home. Um, I was at the end of my rope. Maybe some of you have been there. And I needed a retreat for me. I needed it. And so I said yes to be on this committee. So just like today, I had to give an announcement. I came up to the front of the church, and I got really vulnerable. And I said what I was feeling, where I was at in my life, how much I needed a retreat to get closer to God again and get closer to my sisters in Christ. And I looked out, and it was like nobody knew what I was talking about. And I felt foolish. So after that service, one, and I just felt like, oh, what did I do that? I, I just felt de- deflated, de- depleted. And um, one, one woman, one woman came up to me and she said, thank you so much for being, being vulnerable. I needed to hear that and I'm glad you shared. And I will be at the retreat. So October 15th, um, we are having a retreat here. We um, haven't had a women's gathering here for a few years, and it's time. We all need this, and it's time. So the Priscilla Shire simulcast, it actually already happened. The live event already happened, and we've purchased like a replay of it, and so we're going to be doing that on October 15th. Um, It's from, let me look at my notes here. Um, Doors will open at 8.30, and it goes from 9 to about 4, and your registration fee includes lunch and a few snacks and coffee and um, great fellowship with a great group of women. So you are going to get, if you're a woman today, I want you, when you leave today, I want you to pick up two of these from out in the foyer. One is to put on your fridge, and one is to invite a friend. Um, let's see what else I needed to say. 
We also have, because it happened already, we also have some digital passes available. So if you are not able to attend that day or if you know someone that's homebound or um, really busy, we have 20 passes available that somebody could just reach out to the church and I can get them a link and they can watch the, watch the whole event anytime. So that's available too as an option. Um, so with that, I just want to sincerely invite you to um, join us on October 15th. And um, I know there's one in here that I'm talking to. I know. Mm -hmm. I know there's one. So uh, thank you, and um, we hope to see you then. Thank you, Leah. And good morning. If you're, if you're new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Free Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here with us this morning. And in particular, we have a bunch of Vanguard from Honey Rock here with us, and so we're glad you guys are here. Um, I encourage, <laughs> encourage all of you regular attenders to introduce yourself, meet them this morning, um, and say hi. Um, yeah, so following the service this morning, we'll invite you to head downstairs, get coffee, get treats, and then for you Vanguard over in the library following that, we'll have a gathering for you guys and people there to answer questions for you and talk to you a little bit about the church. And um, yeah, so but we're glad you guys are here. Um, as a church, like one of the things that we really want to be about is growing, to be like Christ, helping each other grow in their Christ-likeness. So if you look in your bulletin this morning, there are a number of ways to do that, especially if we head into October and Opportunities coming up. Right? So one of those is, is next Saturday. There's a membership class. It'll be next Saturday here at church. That's the next step for you and kind of becoming more involved in the church. We invite you to be a part of that. And then there's also a number of, of small groups and Bible studies that are starting coming up in October. So the insert in your bulletin has a list of those. But let me just kind of walk through those a little bit briefly right there on on Thursday mornings, Bob and Sherilyn Coach will host a, a small group where they'll be studying Ezra and Nehemiah. And then at, on Wednesday evenings, on Wednesdays when there's not fun club, so pretty much every other Wednesday, there'll be a, a small group led by Glenn and Julie Stauffer um, looking at the book Strange New World. And then Sunday mornings, during the Sunday school hour, from starting at 10.30 over in the library, I'm going to be leading a class for, for parents, talking about how we do gospel-centered parenting. It's the name of the book, and so what it looks like to parent in light of the gospel. So if you're a parent, I'd invite you to be a part of that. For those of you who are not parents, who are used to me leading cross-training during that time, there will still be cross-training. It'll just be led by other people for a season. And then there's also a, a Tolkien reading group coming up that'll restart in late October. And then following the women's conference that Leah just talked about, there'll be some women's Bible studies kind of flowing out of that, also looking at a book by Priscilla Schreier. Um, those will start in late October, and then the information is there in your bulletin. For each of those, there's a, a sign-up sheet downstairs um, that you can sign up on. It would be helpful for us as we head into this season and knowing how many books to order. If you think you are interested, to sign up so we can know to have a book ready for you. There's also downstairs on that same sign-up table a chance to sign up for um, for a child dedication we'll do on October 23rd. It'll be 
come together at the church to um, yeah, support families and dedicate children to the Lord. And that same Sunday, October 23rd, there will be a pizza with the pastors, uh, where Pastor Ian and myself will, will be here, we'll serve pizza if there's a chance. If you're newer to the church, just to get to know us, to ask questions to us, um, and just get, get connected with the church a little bit that way. And then finally, one other thing we are about at the church is serving other people. We're going to be about a church of service. So again, in your both there's a list of ways to serve the church. And so if you look at that and you want to fill that out and drop it in the offering box on your way out this morning, right, that's a way to serve. One upcoming tangible way to serve is that there is the, the Three Eagle 5K and Half Marathon coming up in two weeks. So we're looking for a few people to man aid stations along that route. So if you're interested in serving in that way, you can talk to Sherilyn Coach. She's in the back. She has a sign-up sheet for that um, to yeah, serve those that will be running in that race. So the chance to serve that way as well. well. We are glad this morning to have the chance to set aside time from our week, set aside block from busy lives, right, to come together as God's people in this place and worship. Right? So we come together with yeah, coming from busyness, many of us coming from chaotic things, many of us but in order to kind of calm our minds, let's have a time of prayer together. Father, we do we thank you for this time that's been set aside that in your infinite wisdom you you declared you you command us to gather together as your people for worship for edification for hearing your word You command us to to rest. You command us to worship. And so let us do that this morning. Whatever is going on in each one of our lives, whatever is gnawing at our minds, demanding attention, would it fall away for a time this morning as we sing, as we hear your word as we fellowship together as your people. Father, would our praise of you and our glorifying you be the thing that is foremost in our minds this morning? Would other cares, other concerns fade to the background for a time and our minds could be transfixed on what a great and amazing God you are what an incredible Savior Jesus is. Father, would we worship, would we glorify you well this morning? Would your name be praised here in this place? For those here who are walking through hard times right now, whether it's the medical concern or 
other struggles. Pray that you would give them a deep and abiding sense this morning as we gather here that you are with them. Even in the midst of struggle and trial, you are present. Would we see your goodness, see your glory even in the midst of hard times? And would we glorify you for who you are and all that you've done for us in Jesus? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to sing a song, Be Still and Know, which is, as you recall, was dedicated to the people of Ukraine and what they're going through. And if you don't know, we also support uh, missionaries with Josiah Venture, and Josiah Venture has been very active in providing relief for people in Ukraine, bringing food in, helping refugees get out. I just thought I'd give you an update. It's on the slides here. But so far, they've evacuated almost 5,500 people using 51 buses, and they've giving people temporary housing. They're working hard to find people permanent housings who have had to evacuate the country. And I don't know, where's the, yeah, the the last one. 1.4 million meals they've provided. I mean, it's just amazing. So there's a group that is servicing, serving the Lord in Eastern and Central Europe. They reach out to young people primarily. And when this crisis came up, they kind of dropped everything they were doing and rushed in to help the people of Ukraine, and I really admire them for that. They were able to pull off their summer ministries as well. But if you want to uh, contribute to that, that uh, is an opportunity. Just go to josiahventure.com. Also, I want to mention another uh, mission that our church supports, and that vision of hope in Haiti. If you've been watching the news, Haiti is like a dumpster fire right now. I mean, the country is in total anarchy People are afraid to leave their houses. So if you have a a burden for Haiti, um, you can Google Vision of Hope Ministries and you contribute to ways to help people directly on the ground through ministry that was founded and run by a member of our church, Greg Schenke. So anyway, so that's what's going on in the world. Let's now continue our worship. If you would stand, if you can, and let us sing Be Still and Know, and uh, we'll wind up our worship time.
to rest to the weary. Come as a balm for the sore. Come as a dew to my dryness. Fill me with joy evermore. Come Holy Spirit, I need you now. Come sweet Spirit, I pray. Come in your strength and your are in need of the Holy Spirit in us that apart from you sending your spirit in our lives to make us aware of our sin and to make us aware of our need of Jesus we are without hope that our only hope in growing in Christ-likeness is the product of your Spirit at work in us. So we pray that you would make us very keenly aware of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. That through your Holy Spirit you would work in us to make us more like Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So one of the things that we, we value in our house and we value as parents is, is reading to our kids. And as a result of that, we have a fair number of kids' books in our house. And it, it turns out that like, some kids' books are way better than others. Right? Like, I spent a lot of time like, thinking about our books and which ones are good, which ones are bad, and like, what makes for books I like and what makes for books that I, I don't like. And I've realized that one thing that I really like in children's books, especially books for young kids, is 
when the books have like a cadence and a rhythm to them, right? So there's books like Alexandra Boynton's Barnyard Dance. It's one of my favorite to read. There's a book. There's a book called uh, Bear Snores On. Right? And like, if my kids give me the choice of what book to read, like I'm gonna choose this book every time. They're sick of it. I'm not. Whatever. <laughs> right? But like, but what I've also realized is I like books with a cadence, but I also really don't like books for kids that like use bad logic to teach some kind of moral lesson. Right? And so, like the Pete the Cat books, like they're they're terrible about this. Right? Like, and like I know some of you right now are like way past kids' days, you don't have kids, and you're like, don't recognize any of these books, and you're like wondering why I'm up here ranting about children's books. I promise there's a point, just hang with me, right? But, so in this book, like, Pete the Cat, Construction, Destruction, just has like, it drives me crazy every time I read it, right? So Pete the Cat, right, he's a student at the school, but he somehow gets permission from the principal to redesign and then build a new playground, right? As a student, right? So that's, that already doesn't make sense, right? But then, so then they build the playground, and it seems to be going pretty well, and they got it all put together. And like, just before they got the finishing pieces on the playground, they, Pete decides, you know what? Like, this could actually be cooler. And so he redesigns the entire playground, and they undo all their hard work, and they, they rebuild the whole playground. Right? And finally... At this new redesigned playground is it completed and everyone's standing back and looking at it amazed at what a great, amazing playground it is. But then before anyone can actually play on it, the whole thing comes crashing down. Right? Right, so clearly there were some like safety guidelines not followed in that construction, right? It's not great. Right? Right, but somehow, and here's where the book gets like really maddening for me. Is that as the playground comes crashing down to the ground, the pieces don't just fall to the ground. You know, like physics would dictate. Right? Somehow in this book, like the pieces mix themselves up and reassemble themselves into another brand new design. And this is how the book ends. Oh no, says Principal Nancy. The pieces are all mixed up. Everyone is disappointed, except for Pete. It's not how he planned it, Pete shouts. It's even better. The playground is filled with surprises and places to explore. The school, the school playground is the most amazing playground ever. And then all the Pete the Cat books end with a moral on the last page. Right? And so the moral of this story, like what is it? If I was writing this book, it'd be something about like, hey, maybe you should hire professionals to build <laughs> playgrounds. Right? But no. The moral of this story, according to the author, is Right, the last page says, sometimes you've got to dare to dream big. Right? And that's the moral of the story. Like, if you dream big, it'll work out. Like, like no! Like, that's a terrible conclusion to draw from the events of that book. Right? Right? Just because something inexplicably worked out in, in violation of all the laws of physics, like, doesn't mean you should try to emulate it. Right? Like, or more broadly speaking, like, and this applies to all of life. Right? Reaching a good outcome does not imply that the steps you took there to get there were necessarily good. Right? Like if I ask you what 2 plus 3 plus 4 is, right? and, then, and you think, well, 2 plus 3 is 6, and 6 plus 4 is 9, so the answer is 9. Like, look, you got the right answer. Good for you. Like, 
the steps were terrible to get there. Like, like, getting a good conclusion does not always imply the good steps in getting there. Right? Like, but our brains love to draw conclusions. Regardless of whether those conclusions are actually valid. We just have pattern-seeking, conclusion-drawing brains. So it's really easy for us to draw faulty conclusions based on invalid premises. That's what we see in today's passage in the book of Luke. We see that the Jewish religious leaders, they they had done this with their view of God. They had reached faulty conclusions because they had invalid premises about God. They had... They had noticed a few facts about how God interacted with them, and they had come to some dangerously false conclusions. It can be really easy for us to sit here and to look at them and to think, oh, like you poor, foolish, blind religious leaders. Like, how could you not see the error of your ways? But what I hope we see this morning is that we are just at that risk of making some of the same kinds of errors in our thinking about God that, that the Jewish leaders were. So my hope is that as we, as we look at this passage, we'll learn from the mistakes the Jewish leaders made. Like we'll learn from their bad logic so we can guard against making some of the same mistakes ourselves. So today's passage is Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. And in this passage, Luke is, or Jesus is telling a parable. In fact, it's, it's the last parable he'll tell in the whole book of Luke. And he tells it while he's standing in the temple in Jerusalem. With that in mind, let's, let's read this parable together, starting in verse 9 of Luke chapter 20. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant. But that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and he will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So just to kind of make sure we're all on the same page with this parable, let's stop here for a second and just make sure we're clear on who everyone represents. So the man who planted the vineyard, that's that's God the Father, and the farmers or the the tenants, the tenants that rent the vineyard, they are the religious leaders of Israel. So this is the it's a pretty common arrangement back in that time when like, a landowner would rent his land to some farmers and in exchange he would expect to receive a certain percentage of whatever crop the land produced from the farmer. Right? So the landowner would send a servant to go collect the landowner's share of the crop. 
Right? So in this parable, then, like the servant who are sent, right, they represent the, the prophet of the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly sends prophets to Israel and Judah, and he's urging them to turn back to God, like urging them to bear fruit. Right? But the prophets are continually rejected, just like the servants in this parable. So in this parable, then, the, the landowner eventually sends his beloved son, the son whom he loves, which obviously represents Jesus. Right? But then the tenants say, hey, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed the son. So not only is this, this, par- this a parable, right? it's also a, a prophetic parable. Right? Jesus is predicting his own death in this parable before it, it happens. Right? But the, the tenants, the farmers think that if they, if they kill this beloved son, they will inherit the vineyard for themselves. And here's where that bad logic starts to creep in. Because right? that's often what happens. Right? If, if a landowner died without an heir, right? then the farmers who are farming the land got to inherit the land. But the landowner is not going to let that happen if the reason there's no heir is that the farmer killed the heir. Right? That's bad logic. Right? So the parable ends with Jesus saying, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Not just give them the land. Right? He will come and he will kill those tenants. He will give the vineyard to others. As a result of rejecting the servants and killing the son, the landowner will come and he will give the vineyard to others. The big question then is, like, what is the vineyard? So in Isaiah 5, we have something that's called the song of the vineyard. And Isaiah says, in Isaiah 5, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one has a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Then in verse 7, Isaiah says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. The vineyard is the nation of Israel, the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. So every, every country has its, its symbol. For the United States, it's the bald eagle. For Canada, the maple leaf. For Japan, it's the cherry blossom. Like We all have national symbols that identify with, we identify with certain countries. And for, for Israel, one of their national symbols was with the vineyard and, and grapevines. And so in this parable, like it's clear that the vineyard, which the farmer comes and takes away, is, is Israel. Right? Or more specifically, the thing that the farmer takes away is, is Israel's status as God's specially chosen people. Isaiah said that the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. So when God comes and he takes the vineyard away, what he's taking away is Israel's status at the people that God finds special delight in. And the parable ends with Jesus telling us that God is going to give that status to another. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that that other is the Gentiles. But Israel had become so 
comfortable in their status that God's special favored people. They couldn't even fathom the idea of, of them losing that status. So Jesus ends this parable. Right? And the people hear it and they know what he's saying. So they hear it and they respond by saying, when the people heard this, they said, God forbid. But then Jesus looked directly at them and he asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. So the big, the big takeaway from this whole parable, right, the big thing that Jesus wants his hearers to understand is this. That God's plan ultimately will not be stopped. The primary failure of logic on the part of the Jewish leaders, that they believed that they could stop and they could usurp God's plan. And they thought, like, if we just kill the son, then God's plan will come to naught. Right? If we kill the son, then we win. So the ultimate false conclusion that the Jewish leaders reach is we can stop God's plan. We can make things go the way we want them to go. We can outsmart God. But that conclusion is reached based on a series of false premises. There are are some false assumptions that when they are made lead to this false conclusion. And so the rest of our time this morning, I want to look at a few of those false assumptions. And then I want to think about like how we can be prone to making the same false assumptions so that we can guard ourselves against them. And the first, first false assumption has to do with God's apparent distance. Right? In verse 9 we read that right, the vineyard owner, right, who represents God, planted a vineyard and then went away for a long time, it tells us. So God plants a vineyard and then goes away for a long time, and the Jewish people took that distance to God going away. They took that as a sign of his indifference. They thought that God was so distant, so they could do whatever they wanted to do, and God wouldn't care. But what we see in this parable is that God's apparent distance does not imply his indifference. And I add that word apparent in there because we're reminded of the book of Acts, that God is not far from any of us. But the reality is, we can all acknowledge that there are times when, when God does feel distant. When it feels like God doesn't care what, what's happening in, in our lives. When it, when it feels like everything is going wrong. Like, and like, we wonder, like, where is God? Why is God so far away? Why is God so distant? Like, where are you, God? Right. The psalmist certainly felt this way a number of times. So in Psalm 13... The psalmist writes, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? God, why are you so distant? Or Psalm 90, Oh Lord, come back to us. How long will you delay? 
take pity on your servants. God, come back. You're distant now. Come back to us. And these are, these are men who are writing Scripture. They're writing the Bible who feel this way. Like, who feel that God is distant from them. And so the first thing to say is that if you're here this morning, you feel that sense of distance. You feel disconnected, right? It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. Right? Men who wrote the Bible had periods of feeling that way. It doesn't mean you're beyond hope. We all go through seasons like this at various times in our life. Times when God feels distant and far off. But what we must not do, we must not make the mistake that the Jewish leaders made. We must not confuse God's distance with His indifference toward us. God feeling distant from you for a season does not mean that He is indifferent toward you. question then is like, what do we do in those seasons when God feels distant? Like, what do we do when we don't feel a deep connection to God? But the answer is not like, just assume God doesn't care. Therefore, we can just go living however we want. What we should do is do what the psalmists do. Right? And throughout the psalms, we see the psalmists do two things when God feels distant. They seek and they wait. In both Psalms I read a minute ago, like, the author says at some point, how long? So the, the psalmist acknowledges in saying that, that, that God feels distant, that God feels disconnected. But in asking how long, it's also a question he's asking to God. The psalmist is seeking after God, even as God feels distant. The psalmist doesn't give up on God. Instead, they cried out to God in the midst of their despair, in the midst of their feeling distant. And then, after crying out, after seeking God, they waited. In Psalm 40, David's writing this psalm, and he writes this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. So David was in a, a slimy pit. And so he, he cries out to God and he waits patiently. The Psalms don't tell us how long the wait was. But the fact that David had to be patient implies that it was a, a lengthy wait. But eventually God answers and he lifts David up out of the mud and the mire and he sets David on a rock. But that's a long wait. And you might wonder, like, why would God do that to David? Why did God make David wait? Why not answer immediately? Or for me, like, why does God have me in this hard place right now? Why doesn't he answer me now? Why do I have to wait for him? David answered that question himself in verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. Because of what He endured, David learned to praise God in a fresh and a new way. God put a new song in his mouth. Because of David's patient waiting through his experience, 
He learned a deeper sense of praise for God. And as a result, more people put their trust in God. God had a, a bigger purpose for David's suffering than David could see himself while he was in the pit. There was a purpose of leading people to trust the Lord. So if you're, you're here this morning, or you're watching online this morning, and you feel that, that God feels distant right now, if you feel disconnected from God, like, I just urge you, like, don't give in to the false assumption that because you feel distant from God, God is indifferent toward you. Instead, like, learn from the psalmist. Right? Seek God, cry out to God, and then wait patiently for God. And trust right, that God has a bigger purpose for your suffering than you can see in the moment. Trust that if you wait patiently, God will come. He will answer. He will lift you out of the pit. He will set your feet on the rock. And you will come out of this experience with a deeper ability to praise and worship God. Seek God. Wait for God. God's apparent distance does not imply His indifference. Similarly, the second kind of failure of logic we see is that your freedom does not imply a lack of consequences. In the parable we read this morning, the landowner repeatedly sent servants out to collect the fruit from the tenants. What was owed, right? He sent them out, and each time the servant was sent out, and then would be beaten and cast out empty-handed. And it seemed like to the people who were on the farm, there was no consequence for their failure to respect the servants and give the servants what was owed. Though because they've gotten away with it three times already, right, they start to think that they're free to do whatever it is that they want with the land. And they expect that there won't be consequences if they fail to obey the landowner. Not only that, they think that if they kill the son, then they will get rewarded. They will get to inherit the land for themselves. And we see something similar with the people of Israel, the religious leaders of Israel. Even though they, they rejected the prophets, and yes, there were times of any occupation and exile, right? but every time God brought them back to the land, if they were convinced that no matter what they did, Nothing they could do would cause them to lose their status as God's specially chosen people. That's why they react so strongly when Jesus says in verse 16 that He will come and He will give the vineyard to others. Right? The people respond saying, like, God forbid. Like, there's no way God would do that. Like, we are entitled to our role, our status as God's chosen people. No matter what we do, we deserve that. The thought of losing the vineyard of losing their status as God's specially chosen people was unthinkable to Israel. And no matter how they rebelled against God, they didn't really think God would give them the consequences for their action by taking away the vineyard. They thought they were free to live as they saw fit without ultimate consequence. But what we see in this parable, what we see throughout the Bible, that just because God gives you a gift... Like He gave Israel their status as a gift. Just because God gives you a gift doesn't, doesn't mean that you're free to use that gift however you see fit. Right? Ultimately, God still owns everything. 
And anything he gives you, he gives you for you to be a steward of, not to use however you want. He gives you good gifts so that you will use them ultimately for his glory, not for your own personal gain. So even though God has given you gifts, there are still consequences if you misuse those gifts. So the people of Israel failed to grasp. They thought, God has given us this land. He's given us this special status. So now we're free to live however we want. And we can be prone to doing the same thing. We've all been given gifts by God. Whether it's talent or it's time or it's material possessions or it's health or it's intellect or it's wealth. Like, we've all been given gifts. If we aren't careful, we can forget that those gifts were given to us by God for us to be good stewards of and to use for His purpose. It's easy to think of our, our talent, of our, our knowledge, of our Wealth is, is something that we're entitled to. Or worth is something that we're, we deserve for some reason. We've earned our talents. We've earned our gifts. We've earned our wealth. And therefore, since like we've earned them, we're entitled to them, then we can use them however we want. You might be inclined to say, or at least like secretly think, right? Because we wouldn't say this out loud because we know better, but you might secretly think, like, well, I've... I've worked hard for my money. You have no idea how many hours I've put in at the office or on the job site. I've earned this money. I, I should be able to spend the money I've worked so hard for how I want to spend it. And I'll just ask. Right? Like, okay. But like, who gave you the intellect to do your job? Who gave you the physical capability to be able to do your job that earned you that money? Who, who instilled in you a, a work ethic that allows you to work hard at your job? Ultimately, who, who gives you every breath that you take, every beat of your heart? All those things are gifts. Like You didn't earn them. I have no doubt you've worked hard. What you've worked hard at is putting to use what has already been given to you as a gift by God. God gave you intellect and health and a work ethic and ultimately life itself. He gave you those gifts to be used for His glory. And yes, like you are ultimately free to use those gifts, whoever you want. Like you're free to use them entirely selfishly. But that freedom does not imply that there will be a lack of consequences for your choices. When I taught fifth grade, on occasion, one of my students would complain, like, I don't want to be here. Like, I was a great teacher, so they would say very often. Right, but every once in a while, they would say, like, I don't want to be here. And I'd always tell them, like, like, actually, like, no one's making you be here. Like, if you got up right now and walked out the doors... I would not tackle you and drag you back to class. Like, I'm not getting sued. Like, like, you don't have to be here right now. Like, it is your choice. But if you did that, like, I would call the office, and they would call your parents, and the police might get called, and yes, there would be consequences for you leaving. Like, but you're free to choose. Like, you don't have to be here right now. You're choosing to be here because, like, 
being here if preferable to the consequences of that you would face for getting up and walking out. Like, you're choosing to be here because the consequences are worse than being here. Like, you're actually doing what you want to do by being here. And the same thing is true for us in a way of with the gifts that God has given us and how we use them. We're free to use them however we want. But there will ultimately be consequences for how we choose to use them, either good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10 Says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So, like, here's my encouragement to you this morning: use your freedom, use the gifts God has given you for His purposes, for His glory, and not because God needs anything from you but because it's for your good. And there's one thing this story does make clear, is that it is indeed that God needs nothing from us. And God will bring His purposes to pass if we submit to Him or not. He will bring about His plan. And nowhere is that more clear than in the story of Jesus itself. In the story of the beloved son whom the, whom the vineyard owner sent and the tenants killed. The farmers in this parable thought, like, surely if we just kill the son, then we win. But as we read, like, that's not how the story plays out. What we see through this is that Jesus' rejection does not imply his ultimate defeat. In verse 17, Jesus says, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And that's a, that's a quote from Psalm 118, which is, interestingly, the same psalm that was quoted at Jesus as he entered Jerusalem during the triumphal entry. But the stone the builders rejected had become the cornerstone. And apparently, like, when the temple was being built, the, the foundation stones were cut at a quarry and then shipped to the temple site after they were cut and there was this stone that was found that was initially rejected because it was too big for the laying of the foundation. So they rejected this stone and then later found that this stone they had rejected actually was the perfect size to serve as the cornerstone, the most important piece of the whole temple. Now Jesus is here saying, like, that's me. Right? I'm the rejected stone that's actually the most important piece. I'm the rejected stone that actually completes the whole picture. Jesus' ultimate rejection is seen right on his death on the cross. The religious leaders think that if they kill the beloved son of the father, it will solve all their problems. But even though Jesus was rejected by the leader of Israel, even though he was killed on the cross, he was not defeated, and God's plan was not stopped. In fact, Jesus' death on the cross was, was part of the plan from the very beginning. In Acts chapter 4, the, the disciples are gathered together to pray, and they, they pray this. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. 
They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Jesus' rejection and death did not stop God's plan. It did not defeat him. It was part of God's plan. The ultimate display that Jesus was not defeated is seen on, on Easter morning when Jesus rising from the dead. Right? It, was, it was Satan and sin and death that were defeated, not the Son. And in fact, it is his very death that allowed Jesus to become the cornerstone. And it's only through his death that, that he can become the central piece of God's plan. Even the death of his own son did not stop God's plan. So again, if you are here and you find yourself in a, in a hard season, either now or at, at some point in the future, I just hope you find hope in the story of Jesus. That shows us that no matter how, how bleak things may seem at the moment, God's plan always prevails. I always think of like what the disciples have been feeling on that Saturday between Jesus' death and his, his resurrection. How without hope they must have felt seeing their Messiah killed. Maybe you have similar feelings about some part of your life, now you feel some despair, some hardship going on. The cross and the resurrection shows us that no matter how bad things look, God's plan is still in motion. God's plan will still prevail. If you're, you're here this morning, as we said earlier, I would just encourage you, as you're in that dark place, to, to seek God and to wait patiently on God and then to, to trust that even in the darkest times, God's plan will prevail. And ultimately, God will show up and He will put an end to all pain and all suffering and all sin. He will judge those that do sin and it cause suffering for others. In verse 18, Jesus said, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. What Jesus is saying and saying that is that everyone who, who doesn't trust in Him, who doesn't, everyone who doesn't trust in Jesus, doesn't follow Jesus, will be, will be crushed, will be judged. Whenever we talk about God's judgment or the danger that can come across feeling, feeling harsh. That it can make God sound like the bad guy. But what we miss when we think like that is that God's judgment does not imply a lack of compassion. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to Israel, urging them to repent and turn back to God. That was compassion. In 2 Peter 3, Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise. And the promise he's talking about is that God will judge the wicked. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And God is abundantly patient with us. 
Judgment only comes because we fail over and over and over again to respond to God's patient compassion towards us. If you're, you're here and you've been living a life in rebellion against God, if you've been living a life where you're using your freedom to live the life you want to live and not for God's glory, if you've been living a life that maybe it looks good on the outside, but you know inwardly you're full of sin and you haven't been repentant over that sin, just urge you, don't reject God's attempt to show compassion to you. Don't reject God's attempt to lead you into righteousness. Don't confuse God's patience with His acceptance of your sin. He is patient because, as we said, He wants everyone to come to repentance. This idea of repentance is just simply the, the turning away from sin and turning to God. Every breath you breathe after you sin is a, it's a gift of God's compassion. Right? The Bible says we deserve death for our sin. But every breath we get as sinners is a gift of God's compassion. The fact that you're not being judged this very instant is a gift of God's compassion. Don't presume on God's compassion. Jesus went to the cross to make a way for your sins, which do deserve death and judgment, to be forgiven. He went to the cross to to take the punishment that we deserve for our sins. He died in our place. In doing that, He defeated the grip that Satan and sin and death have on us. So if you're here and you've, you've never trusted you, you've never followed you, you've never believed that Jesus died for your sin, I urge you to do that. Trust in Jesus. Right? Don't presume on God's compassion. Don't presume that because your life's going pretty well, even though you've been sinning, that everything's fine. Repent. Turn to Jesus. If you have questions about what that looks like, I'd be more than happy to talk to you more about it. Those of us who are here, right, who have committed to following Jesus, who have trusted Jesus, who know our sins are forgiven. Even if you've been forgiven, you know you're forgiven, like there's still sin that wars in us, there's still sin that gnaws, and part of our old finisher still clings to us, and we know we all still sin. There's a dangerous slope that as we give in to that old sin nature time here and a time there, we don't see any major consequences for that sin, and so we feel free to sin a little bit more, a little bit more. Right? I just urge you, like, be on guard against sin sneaking its way into your life. Like, don't confuse the lack of consequences for your sin immediately with God's acceptance of that sin. Be on guard against sin in your life. Be on guard against becoming like the leaders of Israel, trying to live your life for your own purposes. 
trust right, that God is in control. God has a purpose. God will bring about His plan. As you're here and you're, again, in a hard or dark place, trust that God will bring about His good purposes one day, that His plan will not be stopped, right? that there will one day be a new heavens and a new earth where there is no more sin, there is no more suffering, there is no more pain, there is no more death. And God is at work now in and through you and through others around you to bring about that good future. I know it can be hard to see sometimes, but God's plan is at work and it will not be stopped. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have a good and perfect plan. In your infinite wisdom, you can see far more than we can see. You can see what is perfectly good and perfectly best for your glory. I pray that you would help each of us here to trust in your good plan, even as we walk through hard times, we mourn, and as we go through times of trial and despair, Do you help us to trust you? Do you help us to seek you? Do you help us to wait patiently for you? Help us to trust your good plans. Help us to live out of that trust. Help us to live knowing that even our Dark times have a purpose that we that you were at work even those times to work and to bring others to a trust in you like you were in David's life. But to live in light of that trust, but to live confident of your goodness and your power. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That as you go, I pray that you would just go confident in that one fact, right? That God has a good plan and God's plan will not be stopped. You are dismissed. Oh
Thank you.